This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin State Senator Minor- Senate Minority Leader Janet Buley is being sued for her part in a fatal crash that killed a five-year-old girl and her mother earlier this summer. Father and plaintiff Brandon Fink filed the wrongful death lawsuit last Friday in Ashland County, accusing Buley and two other drivers of negligence that led to the deaths of his daughter and her mother. Alyssa Ortman, a 27-year-old from Pennsylvania, was the mother of Khaleesi Fink, the five-year-old girl who was pronounced dead at the scene of the crash. An Ashland police report found that Buley was distracted by her hands-free mobile device. A Democrat who is retiring at the end of this term, Buley was on the phone with an intern at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel at the time of the crash. Buley told the Journal Sentinel she had cataract eye surgery the day before. Buley has declined to comment. Meanwhile, police reports have been referred to the Ashland County DA, who is still reviewing reports to decide whether to file charges. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources is rolling out a new digital tool to track PFAS pollution across the state. The online map identifies which municipal water systems have been contaminated with toxic forever chemicals and whether those levels are above or below state guidelines. Additionally, users can use this tool to discover areas where surface waters, fish, and wildlife have been contaminated. Last month, the DNR launched an effort to revise groundwater standards for four PFAS compounds, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. This review of, incorporates new guidance from the Environmental Protection Agency that the chemicals are unsafe at levels too low to be detected with current technology. You can find the PFAS interactive data, interactive data viewer on the DNR's PFAS webpage. After just one day, the Goodman Community Center has registered over 2,900 families for its annual Thanksgiving basket drive, setting a new record. The basket drive, which aims to provide 4,000 families with groceries needed for a holiday meal, is already halfway to meeting its goal, reports WISC-TV. With rising food prices, organizers aren't surprised to see such high rates of registration. They're concerned many families won't be able to afford a Thanksgiving meal this year. Families can register for the basket drive until October 28th by visiting goodmancenter.org or calling the center at 608-204-8018. Madison will have to wait once again for the city's first independent police monitor as the applicant hired for the job has backed out of the position. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the top pick, John Tate II, turned down the job during contract negotiations. Tate told the city he had taken a different position with the Racine City Government, where he currently serves as its city council president. It's the second time the final candidate for Madison's independent police monitor has backed out after the hire was announced. Last December, Byron Bishop, manager of the city's Department of Civil Rights and Equal Opportunities Division, dropped out of the position after previous workplace violations were unearthed. That caused the city's Police Civilian Oversight Board, the group tasked with hiring a monitor, to start from scratch. The hiring process for the city's first independent police monitor started in July 2021. And now on to today's top stories. The midterm election is just a few weeks away, and this year voters across the state will be able to weigh in on issues ranging from marijuana legalization, abortion, to allowing ATVs on roads. A large number of school districts are putting questions on the ballot as well, trying to find ways to increase their budgets without having to go through the state legislature. WRT producer Nate Buggyhout has more. 
The November midterm election is just three weeks away, and outside of choosing your candidate for governor, U.S. senator, and a whole slew of other state officials, voters in Dane County will be presented with three non-binding referendums. Two of the countywide questions concern the legalization of marijuana, asking if it should be legalized, the other asking if previous convictions for marijuana should be expunged. It's not the first time legalization has been on the ballot. A similar question to legalizing weed was on the ballot in 2018, when 76% of voters approved it. The third Dane County referendum on the ballot asks if Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban should be repealed. Only one other county, Racine, asks a similar question. These three questions are non-binding ballot referendums designed more to gather the opinions of the voters and not to decide on any major policy change. Despite efforts by Governor Tony Evers, the state legislature decided earlier this month not to bring binding ballot initiatives to Wisconsin. Additionally, 15 different municipalities across the county have their own referendums on the ballot, and of those 14 referendums, 11 come from school districts asking to raise their revenue limits. What are revenue limits? Chris Thiel, legislative policy manager with the Milwaukee Public School District, explains. Revenue limits are, you know, exactly what they sound like. It's a limit on the amount of revenue that a school or a school district can raise to educate students. And they were put in place in about 1993. And ever since then, the state has had a school funding system that kind of starts out with this limit on how much a a school district can raise between state funds and local property taxes. The limit is set by the state and is non-negotiable, except through ballot referendums. But while these had previously been mostly used to help pay for larger projects, this year all but two revenue limit referendums in Dane County are looking for funding just to keep up the same level of quality within the district. Take, for example, the school district of Belleville, which is asking for a revenue limit raise of a dollar short of $1 million for one year for operational and maintenance expenses. But Belleville's revenue limits have stayed roughly the same over the last decade, spending around $10,000 per student each year. That's according to data from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan policy research organization. Data from the policy form also shows that Wisconsin spent an average of just under $13,000 a year per student on public schools, over 5% below the national average. The trend of school districts asking to raise their revenue limits to cover basic costs is not just contained to Dane County. Of the 244 referendums across the state, a third refer to raising school district revenue caps. Ari Brown is a senior research associate with the Wisconsin Policy Forum. He says that revenue limit referendums have been on the rise across the state. The the trend over the last decade or so has been, you know, higher compared to what it was in kind of the late 2000s, early 2010s. But what we've seen kind of over the last decade or so is in uh, even numbered years, uh, we tend to have, you know, quite a few uh, referenda on the ballot, and, and those numbers have generally been increasing pretty gradually um, over the last decade or so. Only two years this millennium have had more revenue limit referendums, 2000 and 2001. While the number of referendums have been rising over the past decade, Sarah Shaw, senior researcher with the Wisconsin Policy Forum, says that this year is a bit different. This seems to be coming from districts facing 
frozen revenue limits in the 21 to 23 state budget, plus different distributions of federal pandemic relief money. Um, And then finally, the cost of inflation, uh, which has made normal operating costs skyrocket. There are other options available for school districts to raise money, but that would require the cooperation of the Republican-led state legislature, which has been hesitant to increase school funding. Last month, Governor Evers, who was the head of the Department of Public Instruction before he was elected, called on the legislature to draw on the state's surplus and boost spending on K-12 schools by roughly $2 billion. The midterm election takes place on November 8th. You can preview what's on your ballot at My Vote Wisconsin. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's open enrollment time for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act, and subsidies that are keeping coverage costs low for many Wisconsinites have been extended. That This means it's time to do some homework to choose the right plan for you and your family, as some companies have added types of coverage and incentives for wellness. Mike Mullen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Wisconsin residents who are looking for a health plan or who want to change their policy can do so starting November 1st. That's when open enrollment through the Affordable Care Act begins. A key factor this year is that Congress extended enhanced subsidies for health insurance premiums, so people who purchase plans through the federal exchange will pay no more than 8.5% of their household income through 2025. Dr. Rhonda Randall at United Healthcare says it's important to set aside time to compare all the plans available as well as understand your own family's needs. Just because you had a certain coverage last year, you might not want to have that coverage rollover. You want to make sure that you're looking into what your options for 2023 look like. Randall says more insurers are expanding their mental health coverage and offering more virtual care options, which gained popularity during the pandemic. She says it's also important to consider the value of having an integrated plan that covers specialty care, such as hearing, dental, or vision. Wisconsin currently holds an uninsured rate of nearly 5.5%. More insurance companies are also expanding their wellness incentives. They may offer discounted rates for people who exercise, don't smoke, or work to lower their blood pressure. Randall says your goal should be to find a plan that helps you navigate the health care system. So you're looking for also a health plan that's going to have good advocacy, whether it's a digital interaction or you're calling your health plan to interact. They're helping you maximize your benefits and services uh, and getting you to the care that you need at the right time. Open enrollment is the only time during the year outside of a special sign-up period that people can make selections that deal with their current health coverage. After kicking off in November, it runs through January 15th. United Healthcare has posted online videos to help people navigate the exchange, as well as the sometimes confusing insurance terminology. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Applications for the Biden administration's student loan forgiveness plan are now open. This plan is helped is to help borrowers who currently have student loan debt. Applications will be open until December 31st, 2023. WORT reporter Abigail Levin spoke with Taylor Odell, Assistant Professor of Educational Policy at UW-Madison, about the impact of this new plan. The application for student loan forgiveness opened today, and it will stay open till December 31st, 2023. For more on that, I'm speaking with Taylor Odell, Assistant Professor of Educational Policy at UW-Madison, about the impact this will have on Wisconsin. Taylor, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. As an Assistant Professor at UW-Madison, can you tell me more about what you've heard maybe from students or staff at Madison or maybe overheard from students about what they think about this loan forgiveness plan? Yeah, I think folks are really excited about any form of loan or debt forgiveness, um, particularly coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic when family finances and budgets have been a little strained. Um, Having some relief for folks who have been in higher education and maybe gotten a degree and are working now or for folks who were in higher ed and didn't finish or didn't earn a degree but still have some loan debt, I think a wide variety of people stand to benefit from uh, loan cancellation. And I think people are really excited. And I've been happy to see that UW-Madison has really taken a leadership role in providing folks with information on how to take advantage of this, um, how to go about kind of consolidating their loans or making sure they're um, on general like repayment plans and things like that too from the Office of Financial Aid. So I think folks are all around excited and lots of folks stand to benefit from this. Wow, that's really neat. So who is eligible to apply for loan forgiveness? Sure. So everyone is eligible to apply for uh, loan forgiveness uh, so long as you have loans from the federal government. Um, So your loans came from what they call the direct lending program. And so if the U.S. government and one of their servicers, like MyFedLoan or Mohila or another servicer, um, if they hold and service your debt, then you're eligible to apply for loans. And you can log in to the Federal Student Aid website and get information on what types of loans you borrowed. And you can also find out there Uh, whether or not you received a Pell Grant when you were enrolled in college. And so um, everyone who has uh, federal student loans is eligible for a debt cancellation, and you can get up to $20,000 in debt relief if you were awarded a federal Pell Grant while you were in college, and up to $10,000 in relief if you hadn't been awarded a Pell Grant. Okay, that's so interesting. So I know around... In the past, there's been a lot of ways to get loans forgiven, maybe more narrow ways. And I'm curious, this legislation from Biden that opened today, how is this program maybe different than some of those other ways? Sure. So I should also say that um, President Biden's program is targeted toward um, kind of like, I would say, like middle and lower income families. And so there is a uh, income cap on kind of eligibility to get the get debt relief. And so um, as an individual, you have to currently be making less than $125,000. Um, or if you're kind of combined married and you file jointly, 
has to be less than uh, $250,000. And so um, it's kind of a targeted program in that way of trying to uh, utilize resources to support uh, folks who may have, you know, borne uh, a hard impact from the COVID-19 pandemic or could be facing some financial struggles right now. And so I think it's a little bit different in that way. Um, it's also different in that it has different levels of debt forgiveness for folks uh, based on their kind of income while they were in college. And so if you were eligible for a federal Pell Grant, um, then that means that you showed some level of financial need while you were enrolled. And so by providing even higher debt forgiveness to folks in that category or in that um kind of designation, then it's kind of additionally targeting these resources to people who stand the most to benefit financially from debt relief. Okay, that's, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm curious, kind of on that note, do you think that those groups will have maybe a higher college attendance rate? Like what maybe are the systemic effects of this as someone who studies educational policy? Sure. So I think there's two things, right? Like this debt forgiveness plan is kind of retrospective. And so folks who are entering college right now, uh, like this fall semester or for the spring semester, they are not currently eligible for debt relief if their loans uh, weren't originated before uh, this year. And so the relief only applies to loan balances if you had them before June 30th of this year. And so if you started college this fall and your loan was processed, you know, on or after July 1, then um, you do not benefit from any debt relief right now. And so it's not forward looking right now. And so the plan is uh, the current policy is not that future generations or future groups of students will receive the same amount of debt relief. And so it is a good thing in that way in that we are acknowledging that a lot of folks hold student loan debt and a lot of populations uh, particularly struggle to repay their loans. Um, but what this policy doesn't do is then fix the system going forward. And so the same folks will still be taking out loans this year and moving forward, and we need to find kind of a better system to support them around the types of loans they should be taking out, the amounts of loans, and how they may go about repaying it. So I don't know if we should expect to see any changes in enrollment, particularly uh, for students. What we, I mean, I think you could see potentially students who took out loans a couple of years ago and are still enrolled in college, um, they would benefit from this program in that, you know, their freshman or sophomore year loans could be forgiven and now they have lower loan balances now. And so there could be an effect there where they are kind of more uh, inclined or have higher motivation to continue participating because they've kind of had their prior loans forgiven. But nothing forward-looking and nothing for folks to plan on this happening again. Gotcha. That makes sense. Uh, because there's not really anything forward-looking at the moment, I'm curious if you've heard of any talk of maybe doing something more like that in the future or if maybe there are if maybe this legislation will maybe inspire some of that future legislation yeah so a kind of a big um golden nugget i guess like in this uh policy change that's flying a little bit under the radar is actually um a change in repayment plan for 
students who hold federal debt. So if this uh, policy like completely wipes out your loan balance, then you're kind of good to go, right? Um, but if it doesn't, then you'll still need to continue repaying what is left. And for students who don't benefit from this because they're starting college, let's say like this year, they will ultimately have to repay their loans as well. But what this program does is it expands the repayment options for students and families by adding kind of an additional repayment plan by making the repayment uh, monthly repayment levels a little bit lower for them. And so what it does is it reduces the amount of income that can be required to pay back on your student loan every month. And so by extension, that saves you a lot of money every month by saying, oh, it used to be, let's say, like, you know, X percent of your discretionary income, and it's now been reduced to like 5 or 10% of that. And so each month, your tuition or your uh, loan bill will be less. Um, and so that's an additional thing that should continue going forward that can benefit everyone, regardless of whether or not you qualify for loan forgiveness or not. Gotcha. That's really interesting. I've been speaking with Taylor Odell from the Educational Policy Department at UW-Madison about the student loan forgiveness program that opened today. Taylor, thanks so much for speaking with me. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I hope folks take advantage of this and go online and fill out the simple application and see if they're eligible for debt cancellation. Time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. This week, Cardinal Call producer Hope Carnop spoke with Gavin Escott to discuss increases in rent prices for students across Madison. Madison's kind of a tricky place to find housing for sure. I mean, there's It's between two lakes, so there's a limited amount of space that developers can build. Hello and welcome to the Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by City News writer Gavin Escott to discuss increases in rent prices as apartment hunting season gets underway. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Gavin. Happy to be here. Just to start, can you explain the timeline for apartment hunting and who tends to look for housing off campus? So usually around middle, beginning of October to November is kind of when the process starts. I mean, freshmen are usually pushed into the process and they don't want to get priced out of or kind of locked out of the process by everyone else so they they're kind of pressured to you know uh, find a group of friends to room with before they even have before they sometimes even have that and that's around the time that uh, older students with uh, that already have leases usually are kind of uh, pushed to re-sign and this year in particular it's it's kind of the timeline has moved up. So students that have said that they were previously asked to sign in November have said that it's been pushed into like the first week of October. So the timeline has definitely shifted for that. 
What apartments have you heard of so far that have raised rents and what have property managers cited as the reason for that? So the most common uh, thing that people are looking at is luxury housing in Madison, like the Hub, the James, um, that kind of stuff. And they've all raised their rents and that's a pretty widespread thing. And the Hub told us that it's due to inflation and the rising costs of goods in general. Um, But a lot of these places, they're not offering any more amenities. They're not upgrading anything. They're just increasing rent. Some places like the Palisades, they've raised rent because they're upgrading their facilities. But a lot of others like the Roundhouse and the Hub and James, they told residents that their price would be around 20% higher next year, which is kind of pushing a lot of students not to resign. And it's not just luxury housing, too. A lot of places on Langdon, a lot of places in the sophomore slums, which is kind of a catch-all term for the area of, of campus where kind of lower income students live, they've raised their prices to um, somewhere around, somewhere in the ballpark between 17 and 25%. So it's definitely um, a significant factor for students looking for housing. The students that you've talked to for your story and also just conversations you've been hearing, what have they said about how these rent increases are affecting how they're thinking about housing for next year? A lot of people said that they were already on the fence for signing, for re-signing for next year, but but one of them told us that once they got the letter in the mail saying the price would increase, that kind of sealed the deal for them, and they told us it wasn't affordable with just everything they have going on, and especially for college students who are already on a tight budget, um, inflation, which has pushed up the prices of goods, and housing, it's just not manageable for a lot of people. And a lot of people told us that um, just in general, it, they couldn't find places, so they were pressured to uh, sign like the first relatively cheap place they could, so just they just so they wouldn't get locked out. What do you think these rent hikes say about the more luxury apartment buildings downtown versus the smaller apartment structures that people might be moving to that are more affordable but away from downtown? I think that there's kind of a reputation that if you live in luxury housing, you're going to be able to pay the prices. So I think the kind of the managers there are confident that they can raise the prices without facing too much backlash. And they, they'll, the residents there, they can always find residents who are willing to pay that much because it's central on campus. So they won't have a problem with that. And places off campus, um, they've also, I mean, though they may not be essentially located, They've also increased their prices, too, just due to the general inflation-oriented situation. You also checked in with Alder Mike Revere about these increases. What did he have to say about it and why Madison can't do more to regulate rent rates? He told us that he hopes that landlords aren't taking advantage of their tenants and future tenants by proposing outrageous increases. And he also said that like double-digit rent increases proposed across the board is really outrageous and he wishes the city could do more to regulate rental rates but he blamed the state legislator in particular for outlawing rent control in the 1970s and i talked to senator tammy baldwin who told me that the state has to kind of manage both the federal and state uh, branches of government to kind of address this housing crisis because it's super significant and it's affecting a lot of students who are especially vulnerable Besides cost, can you explain some of the other factors that go into students' apartment searches when they're looking around for places to live? There's def- there's a definite need to find housing. I mean, especially now when UW-Madison has welcomed a record number of students, record number of freshmen. Um, it's 
it's pushing people out of the dorms and just kind of the general culture of college you the kind of traditional idea is that you stay in the dorms your first year and then you look for housing with your friends afterwards so a lot of people feel that kind of the college idea is that you do that and it's kind of pushing them to maybe look for housing when they're not able to or not in a position to be able to do so. Have there been any other news or developments in rent prices and apartment searches since you reported your story? Um, two Fridays ago, there were around a dozen people who were camping outside Monroe Street who were trying to secure affordable housing for next year. And they stayed up like all, they stayed up throughout the night and they and they it was around 24 hours before because that Friday was the first day applications were accepted and as with a lot of these applications it was on a first come first serve basis so a lot of students told um, told the news that it, uh, it everything was really competitive this year and that they and that when they saw this place open up they kind of jumped immediately on it because of just the general competitive nature of Madison's housing market. In general, what do you think these rent increases demonstrate about the current housing situation for college students in Madison? Madison's kind of a tricky place to find housing for sure. I mean, there's it's between two lakes, so there's a limited amount of space that developers can build, and there's a lot of not there's just kind of every incentive for landlords to continue raising prices kind of at the detriment of students. So, it's going to get worse before it gets better probably. Um, and every 10 years, the university develops a master campus plan. So there's probably not going to be any new residence hall construction around 2025. So there's going to continue to be packed residence halls until then. And just the general, uh, just the general continuation of what's going on right now. Is there anything else you'd like to share about your reporting? So newly leasing students are usually forced to accept whatever lease they're offered or else they'll lose their deposit. So oftentimes students will have to accept bunk bed style apartments and they'll, like they'll be crammed into minuscule rooms that are forced to fit or that are meant to only fit one person. And these apartments also like nickel and dime residents whenever possible. So re- leasing terms are a little over 11 months. So students are, con- are contracted to pay for an additional month. And for a lot of these places, utilities aren't even mentioned. So for a lot of people I talk to in the hub and the James, Uh, the price of laundry and those other services, they're not included in the rising prices. So that just covers their rent and not other utilities like electricity or, or laundry. So there's also on top of like the bottom line cost that's being raised, there's all, there's a bunch of additional costs that students have to take into consideration. Gavin, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us and coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That's all for our Cardinal call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. If you want to learn more about how student housing decisions affect the greater community, the Daily Cardinal produced a print issue and website last year about the topic. It's called Our Impact, the Student Living Issue, and you can find it under the Action Projects tab on our website. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg takes to the skies as birds begin their migration south and the risks they face with windows in communities across the country. Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment and today I want to talk about bird migration and the risks of window strikes. It's a topic that comes up pretty often but I've got some new statistics to share and wanted to kind of share some information that was a really great write-up that will be in our upcoming newsletter from one of our wonderful volunteers who loves to write about different topics. And one of our volunteers had written a piece about the long journey of bird migration And I thought it was really interesting because she really picked out some of the best aspects of migration, which is that some birds are going to be semi-partial migrants. They'll stick around. You'll see them at your feeders all winter, like our northern cardinals and our black-capped chickadees and even some of our raptor species like great horned owls. But then you get the ones that are going thousands of miles. They could be coming from northern Canada all the way through the United States down to South America. It is just incredible. And they do it in such a short amount of time. Did you know that peak migration for birds is actually from about August through October? And if we're looking at the month of September, actually, in Wisconsin, which is last month, already an estimated 623 million birds crossed over our state alone to go to their wintering grounds. Can you imagine? That number is 623 million birds. That is such an incredible number to me. And did you know that most of those birds are migrating overnight? So they are generally nocturnal migrants, but there are some that are diurnal, so some that travel during the day. Some of those would be geese. You'll see them flying throughout the day in those long Vs, uh, which is kind of a cool thing in itself. But other species might be pelicans. If you've ever seen a thermal of pelicans, which I definitely have, they're giant big white birds that you can see with the black tips of their wings. They'll be flying in large groups. Uh, Herons, swifts, hummingbirds, and then even a lot of the birds of prey, they'll be maneuvering in the warm air thermals, which is just a way that the temperature differences from the heat rising and the different wind patterns kind of make this really great swirly wind when you get up higher into the atmosphere. And those birds will actually use those thermals. They'll kind of jump from one to the other um, while they're flying. So they've got their wings outstretched and they just kind of glide and they don't use a lot of energy and they just kind of circle this toilet bowl of a thermal until they decide, whoop, I'm going to go to the next one. And it's kind of like an elevator. They go up, they go down and they continue to move north to south usually in those types of cases, which is really cool. So those would be the diurnal ones, but most of your nocturnal migrants might be like our songbird species. So you'll see a lot of our warblers, for example, sparrows. We see like common nighthawks and things. So all of those types of birds are are traveling overnight. And there's a lot of risks and perils to the overnight transition, I would say, especially when they aren't sure where they can land. And if you haven't heard of the Lights Out program, it's something to definitely look up. Um, I love the website uh, Flap Canada, which talks about the Lights Out program. And we do have Lights Out programs throughout the United States, but they just have a really excellent website to talk about some of this stuff. But in all honesty, if you're a bird and you're used to traveling and maybe you're using the stars, we don't really know for sure, but a lot of birds, it seems like from studies, maybe use navigation. If they're using the 
the constellation or they're using some sort of north-south magnetic field or the poles. It, it's hard to say for sure, but lights are distracting. So if you've got a big stadium with lights on or a big glass building or something, sometimes they will actually gravitate towards that light and it really messes them up so they'll get stuck. Sometimes they will just continue to circle that light source like a moth to a flame is the way that I like to describe it. And those birds will exhaust themselves to the point where they can just get grounded. So just last week, we had a Virginia rail that did that in a warehouse district area, which is not where a rail should ever be, but it, it was fine. It was just really exhausted. You know, we gave it a quick rehab and we were able to get it back out and released, which is great because he can continue on his fall migration. So, you know, most of those birds overnight, they might be attracted to the lights from urbanization, but also sometimes there are other factors like lighthouses, which yeah, we use for safety and things, but that's another big attractant. But there are a lot of deaths that occur either from that particular situation of getting grounded and not being able to take off or being too tired, or during the migration, they get stuck in an area that they can't get out of. So maybe they drop down uh, to the ground and then they're feeding for a day or two as a stopover. But it happens to be in a hospital courtyard where there are multiple barriers, lots of windows, and they're kind of stuck in this little area that they just can't figure out how to get out. They see the reflection maybe in the windows and they're like, oh, you know, this is, I'm supposed to be flying this direction towards the window where I see a reflection of some of the tree branches, but they're actually hitting glass. So that happens once the sun rises and you get a certain reflection at different times of the day. But actually a vast majority of the window strikes are actually occurring at residences, so people's houses. Um, according to the Madison Bird Collision Corps, which is a group that we partner with at DCHS Wildlife Center, about 43.6% of the window strikes occur in residences and then 53.3% are in low rise buildings. So a lot of people think of the high rise buildings, like the really big towers downtown, that's only 0.1% of all the bird collisions. So it's not really there that we need to do more work uh, to help prevent those window strikes. So remember, the birds are migrating overnight. They stop. Obviously, they, a lot of them stop. Some don't, but most of them will stop. And then maybe they're down on the ground for a couple of days, foraging, getting some food and fuel, and then boop, they're back up again. But every time they land, they're at risk of hitting a window if they're seeing the reflection at a house around a feeder or if they're getting stuck in those low rise buildings in an area like downtown Madison, where there's lots of green space, but there's also a lot of buildings. So if you ever get the chance, definitely check out the madisonaudubon.org slash how to prevent collisions. So it's slash prevent dash collisions about the bird collision core. And you can definitely look out some or look for some information about how to prevent window strikes at your own home. We also have our own informational uh, resources on the giveshelter.org website uh, to talk about how you can best form your windows so that they have something that will prevent the birds from hitting the glass. I would say most often it's going to be the size of the window. So the larger the window, the more often you'll probably have birds hit it. If you have high contrast in your windows, like different decals or things that can make it look like there's dark and there's light parts and that can sometimes help so that there's a reduction of the reflection. And then really the best is the patterned frittered glass, which is really, really cool. It's little dots that you can get and they can come inside the glass or as a window film. And that helps as long as they're spaced out enough so that the birds can't see the reflection as easily and they know that there's a pattern there so it doesn't look as natural and maybe they won't fly into it. 
And then just make sure that the distance and location of like where your plants are in your windows or even on the outside, you know, if you can move those different locations so the birds aren't as apt to go towards the windows, that's great. Even feeders, like it's actually better to put the feeders on the window directly or the more than 10 feet away. And that's because they have to slow down to stop. And if it's too close next to your window, you're actually potentially encouraging them to hit that window before it would land on the feeder. So they are forced to slow down as they get to the actual window itself, which is actually better than having it just a few feet away where they might miss that. And then further away, then you also have that benefit, which is pretty nice. So check out our information um, online, check out Bird Collision Corps, FLAP Canada. Uh, so HTTPS flap.org is a really great one. And otherwise just kind of keep monitoring. If you hear a thud around your house, you're working from home, it could be a bird hitting your window. So maybe do a perimeter check, go outside, check to see if you see any birds under the bushes or down on the ground. Uh, and then if you're able to contain it and we have information about how to rescue those birds on our website, give us a call at 608-287-3235. And that way we can get the bird admitted for an evaluation because so many times we have birds coming in with shoulder girdle fractures, head trauma, a lot of things that are probably worth checking out. So thanks for listening about window strikes here in the Madison area and our partnership with the Madison Audubon Bird Collision Corps. And we hope you enjoyed this segment on WORT and thanks for listening to Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. On this week's Radio Astronomy, host Andrew Nine searches for alien life using a common cruciferous vegetable. Good evening and welcome to Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine and tonight... I'd like to talk about how some astronomers are looking for life on other planets with broccoli? Yes, it turns out the vegetable that may very well be on your dinner plate right now has a lot to do with how we might be able to find life outside of Earth. According to a team of planetary scientists at the University of California, Riverside, broccoli, as well as other plants, emit a special chemical that might be a useful biosignature in the search for life. So what does it mean when scientists call something a biosignature? A biosignature is a chemical or a physical effect that is entirely unique to living organisms and that can be detected at planetary scales. For instance, chlorophyll, the chemical that makes plants green and that enables the process of photosynthesis, is strongly reflective in the infrared. This effect is known as the red edge and has been used by scientists to track the health of forests on Earth from satellites. This effect is so strong that it might even be visible to the James Webb Space Telescope, which is most sensitive to the infrared. On the other hand, something like methane, which is produced by decaying organic matter and other biologic processes, is not necessarily a good biosignature because it can also be produced by volcanic eruptions and other geologic processes. So in that sense, detecting methane on another planet is not a guarantee that life is present on that world. So what makes broccoli so special? Broccoli, and other plants like it, produce a chemical called methyl bromide. 
When a potentially toxic element enters into a plant, in this case, bromine, plants like broccoli can add three hydrogen atoms and one carbon atom to the toxic element in a process called methylation. This converts the toxic element into a gas that is relatively harmless to the plant, which can then be released into the air. The nice part about this is that only living things can produce methylated gases, making it a very good biosignature. There is one complication with using methylated compounds, and that is they are relatively fragile. While they are relatively abundant on Earth, once they get too high up in the atmosphere, ultraviolet light from the sun can destroy methylated compounds. This means that it would be really hard to detect methylated compounds in planets orbiting sun-like stars. In a sense, however, that fragility may make methyl bromide and other methylated compounds even better biosignatures. If methyl bromide is detected in any significant quantity on a planet orbiting a sun-like star, that would mean that something would have to be actively replenishing it in the atmosphere even as it gets destroyed by ultraviolet light. Astronomers are also considering looking for methyl bromide in planets in orbit around cooler M-type dwarf stars, which are more abundant in the galaxy than sun-like stars. Since M-dwarfs produce much less ultraviolet light than sun-like stars, any methyl bromide in the atmosphere would last longer and build up to higher concentrations. By some estimates, methyl bromide can last up to 10,000 times longer in the atmosphere of a planet orbiting an M-dwarf than one orbiting a sun-like star, making methyl bromide much easier to detect. So methyl bromide and other methylated compounds are a very good biosignature. Despite that, however, it's unlikely that the James Webb Space Telescope will do much in the way of searching for these compounds. While JWST will observe plenty of exoplanets over the coming years, the truth is that there are already thousands of known exoplanets, with more being discovered all the time. There simply isn't enough time for JWST to conduct a comprehensive search for biosignatures in exoplanet atmospheres and to accomplish all of its other science goals. That task will most likely fall to ground-based telescopes, both the ones that currently exist and the extremely large telescopes that will be coming online in the next decade. It might seem like ground-based telescopes are at a disadvantage since they have to look through the turbulence of Earth's atmosphere. It turns out that's not the case. Many of the largest telescopes in the world are equipped with adaptive optics, which allows them to make subtle and rapid changes to the shape of the primary mirror in exactly the right way to counteract disturbances in the air, giving them much sharper viewing. Many ground-based telescopes also have very high-resolution spectrographs, which allows them to split light even more widely and see even finer details in the light than even JWST is able to. With all that, ground-based telescopes are more than capable of picking up the slack of observing the composition of exoplanet atmospheres, and they may be our best chance to pick up methyl bromide and other biosignatures elsewhere in the galaxy. And when that happens, we'll be happy to tell you all about it here on Radio Astronomy. My name is Andrew Nine. Thank you for tuning in tonight, and have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WRT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Christian Billings. Your reporter tonight was Abigail Levin. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff of the Daily Cardinal. Super Dave and Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Nate Wiggy Out produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WRT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you get your audio. And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Up next is Spanish language news with Enrique Patio. Good night.